Hi, I'm Stephen Kotowicz. Welcome to Tesla, The Life and Times. Episode 15, War of the Currents, Part 3, Shock and Awe, 1888-1890. Hello everyone, welcome back to Tesla, The Life and Times. I want to apologize for no new episode last week. I was working to deadline on a new story, and only managed to get it finished and submitted with about 45 seconds to spare, leaving me no time to work on the podcast. But thank you to everyone who's started listening to the pod in the last couple of weeks. Even without a new episode, the downloads continue to grow week to week and month to month, which is fantastic. If you keep listening, I'll keep casting. So, to that end, I want to give a shout-out to all the people who took a minute to like or leave a rating on our Facebook page. Jennifer Freer, Clinton Angel Forrest Rapp, Lori Mormon, Fred Mann, Wajahat Jamal, Bjorg Brennan, Robert Nagy, Maximilian Dalm, Afo Maipo, Yasitha Adikari, Magda Melody Sardar, Ragavendra DM, Lucas Lesiak, Chitman Coco, Jahan Zaib Zafar, Piyush Ahuja, Dulunjala Anurda, Feli Rizgado, Merriman Ayub, and Milan Mitrovic. I apologize if I mispronounced anyone's name. As someone with a commonly mispronounced last name, I know how annoying that can be. Remember, if you'd like to leave a rating and review and get a shout-out here, please go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave one there as it helps the discoverability of the show, and means that people will be able to find it more easily when searching about Tesla. Likewise, you can also join our Tesla The Life and Times podcast Facebook page and leave a rating and review there. Now, last time, we heard all about the animal experiments of Harold Brown and how he and Edison used them to try and drive public opinion against alternating current in the ongoing War of the Currents. This week, we'll see the impact that Brown's animal experiments had on New York State's decision to begin executing people using the electric chair. And we'll see the skullduggery used by Edison to ensure that alternating, and not direct, current was used to power the device euphemistically known as Old Sparky. The drive to use electricity to carry out capital punishment started long before the War of the Currents got underway, and began with someone outside the Edison versus Westinghouse feud. As arc lighting systems proliferated, so too did stories of how the high voltages involved were killing people, usually unwary linemen. It might be hard for us from our electrified 21st century point of view to imagine just how new strange, and unknown electrical power was. Instead of guttering candles or sooty coal or the smoke and ash of a wood fire, light and heat was now available at the flip of a switch from an unseen power source that operated without combustion of any kind, without visible fuel, and which seemed essentially limitless. To many in the 19th century, it must have seemed very nearly to be literal magic. So, When this strange new phenomenon began striking people dead, 
perhaps you can understand the fears and anxieties of the average person about this new power that giveth and taketh away. One particular incident from 1881 of a drunken dock worker dying after grabbing a large electric dynamo led Alfred P. Southwick, a dentist from Buffalo, New York, to wonder whether there might be some application for this new electrical power to be put to use in devising a more humane way to execute criminals. Just a friendly tip, if your dentist is obsessed with methods of execution, maybe look for a new dentist. Is it safe? Yes, it's safe. It's very safe. So safe you wouldn't believe it. Clearly a man after Harold Brown's heart. Southwick worked with a local physician, George E. Fell, and the Buffalo ASPCA to electrocute hundreds of stray dogs in an effort to find a method of euthanizing animals via electricity. All this coincided with something of a societal change. Hanging as a form of execution had come to be seen by many people as cruel and unusual punishment, even when done properly. All too frequently, it was botched by an inept hangman. After a series of such botched hangings, and I'll spare you the details of how exactly you botch a hanging, suffice to say it's gruesome, Southwick published articles in 1882 and 1883 on how electrocution could be a humane replacement for hanging, using a restraint similar to a dental chair. Wow, seriously, if you didn't have fears of the dentist before, am I right? Yeah. I enjoy the career that I picked. I'm your dentist. And I get off on the pain I inflict. These articles caught the attention of New York State officials, which, in 1886, set up a commission appointed by the governor, the Medico Legal Society of New York, headed by Elbridge T. Gary, grandson of one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, and which also included Southwick, to report, quote, on the most humane method of capital punishment. As part of their fact-finding, the commission sent out surveys to hundreds of experts, judges, sheriffs, prosecutors, physicians, and electrical experts, seeking their opinions. As part of this outreach, in early November 1887, Southwick wrote to Edison seeking the inventor's opinion on using electricity as a means of execution, and wondering if he could suggest, quote, the necessary strength of current to produce death with certainty in all cases and under all circumstances. Edison wrote back to Dr. Southwick, declining to get involved, citing philosophical opposition to capital punishment. That was in November. Dr. Southwick, however, kept pressing, and he wrote again in December. Appealing to Edison's sense of civic duty, he pleaded, quote, Science and civilization demand some more humane method than the rope. The rope is a relic of barbarism and should be relegated to the past. The commission's survey resulted in 200 or so responses, 87 of which favored electrocution. What Southwick said he needed was Edison's enormous prestige as an electrician to persuade the legislature. However, never one to let his scruples get in the way of cutthroat business dealings, on December 9, 1887, Thomas Edison wrote back to Southwick, Yes, he said, he did, in fact, have some very strong opinions about the best way to execute a man using electricity. The quickest, most painless death, Edison said, quote, can be accomplished by the use of electricity, and the most suitable apparatus employs intermittent currents. The most effective of those are known as alternating machines, manufactured principally in this country by George Westinghouse. 
the passage of the current from these machines through the human body, even by the slightest contacts, produces instantaneous death. We can only speculate as to Edison's reason for his change of heart. The rising price of copper, the growing success of the Westinghouse Company, entrenched competition from gaslight companies. Or maybe he just knew an opportunity when he saw one. It was at this point that, serendipitously, Harold P. Brown and his animal experiments entered Edison's life, and, well, now you're all caught up. Between the experiments of Brown's that the Medico-Legal Society witnessed and the endorsement of Edison, the committee's decision was a foregone conclusion. In mid-1888, they recommended that hanging be replaced by the more humane death by electricity, the concept being so new that the term electrocution didn't yet exist. On June 4, 1888, the state legislature passed this recommendation into law, ordering that future executions use Southwick's electric chair idea. However, the law made no specifications regarding the type of electricity, the amount of current, or its method of supply, since these were still all unknowns. Instead, the legislature ordered the Medical Legal Society to study the matter further and recommend how best to implement the new law. Soon after the execution by electricity bill passed, a New York state official asked Edison what he thought would be the best way to implement the new law. Hire out your criminals as linemen to the New York Electric Lighting Companies, was Edison's rather ghoulish reply. With no specific kind of current called for in the legislation, Edison and Brown understood the need to ensure that the committee ordered alternating current be used to kill the convicted. Associating AC with the electric chair, they felt, would be a fatal blow to the competitive format. After all, who would want the executioner's current running through their home? The race was on. To convince the committee that AC was the one and only right choice to kill people, once again Brown convened a series of animal experiments at the Edison Labs in West Orange. On December 5, 1888, Brown used alternating current, and only alternating current, to electrocute to death a series of animals larger than a human before an audience of press, members of the Medico-Legal Society, the chairman of the Death Penalty Commission, and Thomas Edison himself. In a sign of just how important Brown's demonstrations had become to the inventor and of the survival of his DC empire, particularly given his earlier reticence to publicly or personally associate with Brown. Brown's first subjects that night were a pair of calves. One after the other, Electrodes were placed, one on the spine between the shoulders, and the other on the forehead, directly between the eyes. The wiring of the circuit was more advanced than the dog experiments, as were the electrodes, wrapped as they were in sponges soaked in conductive salt water. Brown fashioned a failsafe for the electrodes so they could be removed from the animal without having to worry whether the current was still flowing. Ever the shill, Brown couldn't resist plugging these failsafes to the assembled viewers, pointing out that the same failsafe device could easily be installed on arc lights and make it almost impossible for accidents to occur, and that he just happened to make these devices and... Oh, oh, this guy. It's like going to an execution and then having to exit through the gift shop. Something of a showman, Brown had also arranged for a more dramatic way to close the circuit that would kill the animals. He wired the leads to a metal plate on the floor which he then struck with a sledgehammer. 
With each hammer blow, the current surged through the calves, 750 volts of AC for 10 seconds, and the calves keeled over dead. But when he tried to electrocute the 1,200-pound horse, well... For the first while, Brown's equipment was faulty. Then the leads were in the wrong place, causing a lot of steam from the saltwater-soaked cotton, but not doing any harm to the horse. Finally, once Brown readjusted everything one last time, he brought his hammer down and blasted the horse with 700 volts of alternating current. Wanting to ensure the horse died, the surge lasted a full 25 seconds, the longest sustained burst of electricity in any of Brown's experiments before or after. When the circuit finally was broken, the horse fell over on its side and died immediately. Despite this snafu with the horse, the Medico-Legal Society Committee was impressed with Brown's demonstration. Why they assumed the execution of a human would go flawlessly when they couldn't even kill a horse right is a mystery, and one that would come back to haunt them. But for right now, everyone, including the press, was in awe of the lethal power of electricity. In the next day's New York Times, one reporter who had witnessed Brown's experiments gushed, The experiments proved the alternating current to be the most deadly force known to science, and that less than half the pressure used in this city, 1,500 to 2,000 volts, for electric arc lighting by this system is sufficient to cause instant death. After January the 1st, the alternating current will undoubtedly drive the hangman out of business in this state. A week later, at the December 12th meeting of the Medico-Legal Society, the group unanimously adopted the Electrocution Committee's proposal of death by alternating current. The biggest decision made, the committee then turned to the minutiae of how to electrocute a man to death. An early idea that the prisoner be immersed in salt water to act as a conductor was abandoned. So was a scheme to place large metal plates upon the condemned man's body. It is well known that if metal be directly in contact with the skin during the passage of an electric current, burns and lacerations are apt to be produced, the committee reported. Remember, this is meant to be a more humane way to execute people. Can't have burns or lacerations. Some wanted the prisoner to be in a standing position when the current was applied, but that too was nixed. There are so many histories of unseemly struggles and contortions on the part of criminals executed by the old methods that the necessity of some bodily restraint is evident, the committee reported. In our opinion, the recumbent or sitting position is best adapted to our purposes. The panel recommended that the condemned man be placed, quote, in a chair especially constructed for the purpose and Dr. Southwick's electric dental chair found its place in history. The prisoner would be strapped securely to the chair with two leather buckles, one wrapped around his midsection and the other around his forehead. One electrode would be placed on the prisoner's spine between the shoulder blades. The other would be attached to a helmet which was fastened to the back of the chair. The sponges around the electrodes, as well as the skin and hair at the points of contact, would be wetted with a solution of zinc sulfate. A dynamo capable of producing at least 3,000 volts of alternating current would supply the power, with the current allowed to flow into the prisoner from 15 to 30 seconds, quote, to ensure death. The committee's recommendations were adopted unanimously, 
and the members decamped to the nearby Pallet Club on 24th Street, where they held an elaborate banquet to celebrate their hard work. Westinghouse criticized Brown's tests as a skewed, self-serving demonstration designed to be a direct attack on alternating current, which, of course, they were. On December 13th, in a letter to the New York Times, George Westinghouse pointed out that while Brown claimed to have proved that anything over 300 volts of AC was deadly, quote, a large number of persons can be produced who have received a 1,000 volt shock from the alternating currents without injury. Westinghouse claimed that Brown was being employed by the Edison Company, and that his experiments were, quote, a desperate attempt by the Edison forces to defame a technology that was defeating them in the marketplace. He used the growing success of his company as evidence. In 1888, Edison annual reports showed central station orders totaling 44,000 lights for the whole year. The Westinghouse Electric Company had orders just for October for 48,000 lights. By 1890, Westinghouse Electric's revenues would soar to $4 million. Harold Brown could kill all the animals he wanted. The market was voting for AC. No one knew this better than Edison, who always kept a close watch on sales figures and the market share of his inventions. Edison wasn't in the habit of losing, and the idea of defeat in such a large enterprise as electricity only stoked his competitive nature. Brown's retort came a week later in a December 18th letter to the Times, in which he, Brown, denied Westinghouse's charge, and was not now or have ever been in the employ of Mr. Edison or any of the Edison companies. He conveniently left out the bit about his main source of income being the selling and servicing of DC systems. Please exit through the gift shop. Brown claimed he had proved the lethality of the death-dealing alternating current and charged that Westinghouse continued to defend AC purely for business reasons. Then, to prove it, Brown challenged Westinghouse to nothing less than an electric duel. I challenge Mr. Westinghouse to meet me in the presence of competent electrical experts and take through his body the alternating current while I take through mine a continuous current. We will commence with 100 volts and will gradually increase the pressure 50 volts at a time, I leading with each increase, until either one or the other has cried enough, and publicly admits his error. An electric shootout at high noon would have been just the thing. This was, after all, only eight years after the famous gunfight at the OK Corral. Sadly, Westinghouse declined the offer. I say sadly because I, for one, would love to do an episode dedicated to the Great Electric Duel of 1888. Alas, it wasn't meant to be. On January the 1st, 1889, New York's execution law took effect. The New York World newspaper hailed the chair as, quote, a highly scientific device, and other articles made the electric chair sound like a carefully constructed medical device, rather than a jury-rigged killing machine. In March 1889, Superintendent of Prisons, Austin Lathrop, contacted Brown, probably due to his visibility and notoriety in the electrocution debates, and asked him to supply the equipment needed for the executions and offered him the contract to design the electric chair itself. Brown turned down the job of designing the chair, 
but did agree to be the contractor to supply the required electrical equipment. In fact, Brown dissuaded the committee from a custom-built generator to power the executions. Too costly, he said. An off-the-shelf commercial AC dynamo would be cheaper and more reliable. And, in fact, Harold Brown knew just the model. To fulfill his obligations as contractor, Brown relied on his connection to Thomas Edison for all important support. First, in early March, for a demonstration to the New York State Prison Authorities, an Edison man assigned to assist Brown requested his boss's help. I have been trying for the past week to buy, borrow, or steal a Westinghouse dynamo, but have been unsuccessful. I am afraid, therefore, that we shall have to trespass again upon your good nature. Would it be possible to rewind your Siemens alternating dynamo so that we can get it at least 1,000 volts? Pleased with the demonstration, state officials said they would order three dynamos for Auburn, Sing Sing, and Denimora prisons, and purchase them through Brown, but under strict terms. The state would pay the $7,000 cost of the dynamos only when, quote, the first execution proves that the plant is suitable for the purpose. Brown wrote Edison in late March, asking that Edison front him $5,000 to purchase the equipment. The people at 16 Broad Street, Edison Corporate Headquarters, do not feel like undertaking the matter unless you approve of it. Do you not think it worth doing, as it will enable me, through the Board of Health, to shut off the alternating current circuits in the state? Edison had the money sent to Brown. The Westinghouse companies, as you would expect, flatly refused to sell to either Brown or the prisons, meaning it was impossible for Brown to obtain the Westinghouse dynamos through legitimate channels. So, he resorted to skullduggery instead. It's at this point that the ominously named Charles Coffin of the Thompson-Houston Company quietly stepped forward, offering his firm's help. As various sources point out, the involvement of Thompson-Houston might at first seem odd. After all, Thompson-Houston was an AC proponent, and for two years the firm had paid a licensing fee to Westinghouse to sell AC systems. But that ended in 1888, when Westinghouse lost a patent suit over the Gallard and Gibbs transformers. This loss freed Thompson-Houston from the licensing deal with Westinghouse, and the company almost immediately began talks about a possible merger with Edison Electric. Seeing an opportunity to deal a heavy, possibly fatal blow to his Westinghouse rival, Coffin, using money from Edison, secretly helped Brown buy used Westinghouse alternators for the three prisons, in part by agreeing to replace them with new Thompson-Houston AC generators. Coffin and Thompson-Houston had at least two reasons for aiding Brown in getting hold of Westinghouse generators. One, it kept the Thompson-Houston name and equipment away from anything to do with the death penalty. And two, he wanted to use Brown to set up a public efficiency test to show that Westinghouse's claim of manufacturing generators that were 50% more efficient than those of Thompson-Houston was false. Brown made sure that the generators chosen produced the same voltage as the standard Westinghouse 650 light system already in wide use. That way, Brown and his allies could correctly claim that the AC sent to the electric chair was identical to the AC current that powered thousands of homes and offices. The identification of the Westinghouse system with death would be complete. 
Now all they needed was someone with a death sentence. It would be more than a year before the electric chair claimed its first victim. Edison and Brown kept busy in the meantime by stirring up more bad publicity for alternating current. A New York World reporter asked Edison, What about the rumor that some of your batteries were sold to the state of New York to use in the execution of criminals? Edison smiled and replied, Oh, that was the Westinghouse engines, not mine. Brown likewise continued his anti-AC polemics. In the spring, he published The Comparative Danger to Life of the Alternating and Continuous Electrical Current, detailing the animal experiments done at Edison's lab and claiming they showed AC was far deadlier than DC. This 61-page, professionally printed booklet, probably paid for by the Edison Company, was sent to government officials, newspapers, and businessmen in towns with populations greater than 5,000. He also kept up his letters and articles in the New York newspapers, billed now as a prominent electrical engineer or New York State expert on electrical execution, and always focused on the latest deaths caused by alternating current. In one, Brown claimed deaths from alternating current had jumped from just three in 1887 to 24 in 1888-89. Westinghouse dispatched investigators who found that of the nearly 30 deaths Brown attributed to alternating current, only one could be confirmed as caused by AC. In 12 of these supposed AC deaths, there were no Westinghouse plants in the city at the time of the accident. In 16 cases, arc lighting, which ran on the DC system, was the culprit. Furthermore, the overwhelming majority of those killed by electricity were electrical linemen installing or servicing power lines, meaning that what was needed was not limits to the spread of AC, but safer working conditions in the electrical industry. But boring facts didn't make as good copy as did Brown's sensationalism. Brown began branching out. He presented before medical and legal groups, not only warning of the dire consequences of AC, but also painting a picture of a brighter future powered by safe, reliable, direct current. Edison called in favors and had companion articles by he and Brown published in the November 1889 issue of the North American Review, an influential magazine of the day. Brown's article, The New Instrument of Execution, recounted his work on the death chair and the special killing power of AC. Edison's piece, The Dangers of Electric Lighting, was a plain-spoken denunciation of alternating current. In his article, Brown laid out his vision of how an execution by electric chair would happen. The deputy sheriff closes the switch. Respiration and heart action of the prisoner instantly cease, and electricity, with a velocity equaling that of light, destroys life before nerve sensation, at a speed of only 180 feet per second, can reach the brain. There is a stiffening of the muscles, which gradually relax after five seconds have passed. But there is no struggle and no sound. The majesty of the law has been vindicated, but no physical pain has been caused. As we'll see next time, nearly every single word of that passage would be proved wrong in the first execution by electric chair. Yes, that's right, next time. Because try as I might, I just couldn't fit the whole story of the development and implementation of the electric chair into a single episode. We still haven't met the first man condemned to death via the chair, 
haven't met his flamboyant lawyer, heard Brown and Edison being cross-examined on just how much they know, or don't know, about electricity's fatal effect. Nor is there time to recount how terribly wrong the first execution via electric chair went. So, next time, we'll have one more episode on this stage of the War of the Currents, and then we'll declare a brief ceasefire so that we can retrieve Tesla from that monastery in Croatia, where, at this point, I'm sure he thinks we've forgotten about him entirely. Thanks for listening to Tesla, The Life and Times. If you're enjoying the show, please spread the word. Tell a friend. Share a link on your social media. Please take a minute to go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to the show and leave a rating and review. Past episodes can be found at www.teslapodcast.com. You can sign up there for our email list. You can keep up to date about the show on our Facebook page. And you can also always contact me directly via email at tesla at or on Twitter with the handle at OurManCotto. Thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Kotowicz.